Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. Yes, so this is another one of our best of episodes. And, you know, if you've been following us at all, or if you're interested in power pop at all, you'll know that we have a great affinity for power pop. It's just such a fun cool musical genre that's actually really diverse but always really enjoyable to listen to for sure yeah i was just listening to a power pop playlist uh the other day it's great morning music it's great like get up and go morning music yeah agreed and it's also really good music for working out if you're for running i find it's really 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 good and just like the clarity of songwriting with a lot of power pop songwriters is Par, it's second to none. It is. Yeah. They, they write, very much songs first. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very much songs first genre. So we've had three very knowledgeable, very cool experts on the show in the past that have delved into power pop. So we're going to be looking at some of our conversations with them today. We have uh, Gretchen Unico, who is uh, works at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And we're going to revisit our conversation that we had with her about the legendary band, The Cars. Yep. She is super knowledgeable and fun. Uh, Kick the jukebox lord. Gretchen and I went to college together, but we didn't. But Louie and I met her uh, separately because you guys did like a Beatles panel together, I believe. That is correct. Absolutely. Uh, And then we all figured out that we knew each other and it was very exciting for all of us. Very cool. Yeah. And she's super, super knowledgeable and... um, we, I think our, our, our and Gretchen's taste really overlap like perfectly. Yes, agreed. <laughs> uh, and then we've got Jason Boxer, who's a former editor of the Weezerpedia, <laughs> which yes. is for all of your Weezer needs. And we talked to them about Pinkerton a few years ago, actually. Yeah, that was a while ago. And actually, randomly before that episode, I had met them at uh, a party and one of my first interactions was th- with them was someone challenging them to name every Weezer album and like EP in order from release date and they got it right. Yeah, yeah, which is awesome. <laughs> Jason also recently ran for, uh, this is just kind of a cool factoid, ran for a seat uh, for their lo- local school board in Manhattan Beach, California. And currently they're in second place. So it's looking like they're going to get that seat, but they're still counting the ballots because of the nature of the election. So uh, in advance, congratulations to Jason. And you'll get to learn a little more about uh, Jason's love of Weezer. (laughs) And last but not least, this was a episode that you missed, but Mm -hmm. was so cool. We talked to Eli Bolin, who is the primary songwriter for a lot of projects. He's worked for Sesame Street, which is really cool. But, uh, you know, mainly if you're a comedy geek like us, he wrote all the songs along with John Mulaney for John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, which you can watch on Netflix, Mm -hmm. which is, and the songs in that are wildly good. (laughs) I was very sad to uh, not be there for this episode one because that is just so cool. Eli seems awesome, and um, also I love Harry Nilsson, so it keeps me up at night. Hopefully, um, I'll one day be able to find peace with myself and that choice, but no promises. Yeah, totally. If this torments you for the rest of your life, that's completely understandable. Yeah, and deserved. So, <laughs> so Eli's going to talk about Harry Nilsson, who was almost the fifth Beatle. You know, I don't know if uh, everybody knows that listening, but it's really interesting. Harry was just a huge influence on other singer-songwriters in the 60s and 70s and definitely falls back into that power pop genre. So, you know, get ready for a really fun best of episode of Kick the Jukebox. Yeah, bye-bye. We've been meaning to cover this album with you, Gretchen, for like quite a while because you're such a huge fan of it and it's sort of a real like tangible place where our tastes overlap and it feels like there's a lot of meaty stuff to talk about so like what drew you to the cars and and why do you love the cars 
So I think that um, at least everyone of a certain age like grow, grew up with the cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in my like late 20s now. So like that that music was on the radio and still is um, my entire life. So it, it's like, I don't remember like the first time I heard the cars, but I, I really got into them actually when I moved to Cleveland, which is ironic because Ben Orr from the cars, the lead singer and bassist, he's actually from Cleveland, which yes. I didn't know at the time that like, wasn't the catalyst. Um, and then uh, also like Rick Ocasek, like lived in Cleveland and like met Ben there and everything. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's like when you move to a new place, your brain changes and you're like more open to things. And like, I think I just really got into the cars because like, I like was listening to just their music casually, just kind of in the mix of everything. And then the song, that, which we'll talk about, I guess, in a bit that really kind of stood out to me was from this album. It was Bye Bye Love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, I don't know if I'd ever really listened to it because it's not one of the big radio hits. I just heard it and like, there was so much about it that just felt like warm and like melancholy and like nostalgic in a weird way. And just like so much of like a time and place. Like it just had a feeling to it that I just really loved. That was kind of a song that really got me like into listening to them and re-listening to that first album, like as a complete package, which I don't know if I'd ever like consciously done. I just kind of got into the discography from there. And then when the, uh, I remember Cheap Trick got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I didn't work there yet, but but Cheap Trick got inducted. And I like, I remember all the stuff around it. And I was like, you know, like what's a band from that era who should be inducted as the Cars? For sure. Um, They're really, I think there's a lot of similarities between those bands. I think, and like literally the next year it happened, like the Cars got inducted the next year. So I think that I, I had spent all this time kind of growing up my fandom. And then like when the Cars got inducted, there was so much news buzz around them that I really like got into it and really got into like researching the band and like learning about them and just like kind of really engrossing myself in the fandom. So like my supercars fandom is only like a few years old, but yeah. it's kind of been gradually building. And I think that is, that's how it is for a lot of bands, you know, where you're like always aware of them and, and like one day they just mean something different to you because of the mind space you're in. And so that's kind of gradually how it happened for me with the cars. But I think if I had to kind of summarize it, what I love about them is that they really like they just have such like an energy and they have such like, like Rick Ocasek has just like, is just one of those people who is a natural songwriter. Like he understands melody. Like mm-hmm. he, he just does. It's like his brain is wired that way. He knows how to write a catchy melody and write like a, a perfect pop song. Like some people are pop songwriters, like, and that's a fantastic skill. And like, I wish I had that skill. <laughs> um, so I, I think that it's just, I'm very much somebody, like I'm a huge power pop fan. I would actually consider the cars power pop. Um, would you consider them power pop over other types of descriptors that they've been called over the years? Because they really were marketed so heavily as like a new wave band. I think uh, part or, of, oh, you know? go ahead. Oh, just early on. And then also like, they're also, so many of their songs are just such a staple of like kind of more classic, uh, like a more classic oldies radio format. So I'm, I'm yeah. wondering, do you consider them first and foremost power pop? I think part of what it is, is like, I, the reason I would for, foremost consider them power pop is probably just because I'm so attuned to that genre and that yeah. like categorization that that's like what I identify them as first. But I think that especially early cars feels very power pop. Like this record, absolutely. Um, and Candio as well. And mm-hmm. then when you get into the 80s, like, I I think there's still power pop in the 80s, but it just becomes conflated with new wave because that was the term that the public knew and understood. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, like, I think new wave is more identified by like the kinds of instrumentation that's used. The, a lot of the production, I think, has a lot to do with new wave, whereas power pop is more about how songs are constructed. Yes. And how like power pop is a lot about guitars it's about guitar riffs guitar driven songs it's about like this kind of very nasally singing style <laughs> I think. like this like you know like beatles and british invasion and 60s music influence like it's very nasally it's not conventional it's not a conventionally attractive singing voice like it's not like very Manilow or whatever it's it's more like <laughs> the I, most I was, attractive singer most attractive. of all time yes. I guess like conventional <laughs> um so it, it it's like very much a style and then new wave is a lot about like synth and um like weird production techniques and like it has I think it's very associated with like the 80s and, and stuff like that um, definitely but I think like you can really 
at least like late 70s, early 80s punk and then new wave and power pop are all very connected. Like there's a lot of those bands can be like cross categorized. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap albums. there. Yeah, yeah it's, so, and it's, it's something Kyle and I have been talking about on, our, on the last few episodes of the podcast is sort of our preferences for power pop when it kind of bleeds more into the punk side of things and is a little more like tightly wound and how there's certain power pop bands that we like, but we feel just aren't as like direct as we want them to be. And we keep bringing up, you know, people are going to think we hate them and we actually don't. We think they're a good band, but we keep bringing up Big Star as being like a little too, a little too um, like kind of gentle for at least for our musical tastes. But I think that uh, this band specifically the cars really kind of I think at least for me sort of scratches all my itches of what I want from a power pop band yeah and I think they like thread the needle with I mean I think uh, many people have made this observation but like they kind of thread the needle between all of these genres like they they had the kind of like new wave skinny jeans Rico Kasich and his big long legs wiggling around like new wavy thing that like really tight stripped down sound. Yes. Um, that the like lead, maybe the lead singer being a frightened man. Yeah. <laughs> <It's a> real <laughs> new wave yeah. trope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, but then also, so like that maybe appealed to more of the like hipstery kids or arty kids, but the, like in the same way that I think Gretchen mentioned, like I remember hearing, the cars on like classic rock radio yeah and like you know i think like like townies like this music just as much as the arty kids did and That's i think right. threading that needle is very hard and very rare and also the sign of like a really fucking cool good band and definitely the cars were a uh you know definitely rick okasic was the number one driving creative force of this band, but they're very much just some of their parts. Uh, yeah, for something sure. It should be brought up. And also it's just a good way to talk a little bit about the history of the band for those who may not be as familiar with, with them. So they really formed out of a longstanding partnership between the, uh, sing- the lead singer and rhythm guitarist and head songwriter Rick Okasik and Ben Orr, who also was one of the lead singers of the band, uh, and was on bass. And they formed a songwriting partnership in the late 60s. And they met in the mid 60s, both while they were living in Ohio, playing in various bands. And then they moved to Boston together. They liked the, the Boston music scene and wanted to be a part of that, where it just notably they ran around with um, Jonathan Richmond of the Modern Lovers. And John, Jonathan Richmond, they were in a band for a brief period of time called Richard and the Rabbits, with jo- which Jonathan Richmond named, which is just like the most Jonathan Richmond named thing ever. <laughs> like, they also were in a folk group together as well. So they sort of were experimenting with a lot of different types of, a lot of different types of musical styles. And then uh, eventually, after a lot of different permutations and some like small local successes, they founded the Cars with Elliot Easton on lead guitars, who I think really gave the band kind of like that anthemic classic rock feel, which yeah. is why I think the music yeah. is so accessible by different types of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg Hawks on keys. And Greg Hawks, like notably... I think uh, he's the un- unsung hero of this band. He's definitely sure. the unsung hero of the band because he's very smart when it comes to his keyboard lines and also yeah. just like... His, you know, he was very progressive when it came to his use of keyboards and sequencing uh-huh. patterns. Yep. And then also had more of, a, apparently had more of a creative say amongst the band as the albums progressed, which is yeah. why I would say by the mid 80s, we hear that like really kind of slick new wave sound. But yep. his keyboard lines on this album are really great. So yeah. it's not like, um, it's not like he was being buried in the background here. He also later on uh, got into uh, releasing these like multi-layered ukulele records. (laughs) And the only reason why I bring it up is that I saw him once at a ukulele fest in New York. What? Really? Yeah. And (laughs) everybody whipped out their ukuleles because we all had them at our little ukulele festival we were all at. And we all played Best Friends Girl with him on the ukulele. Oh my God. I know, which is just really fun. Like it's just, it's worth noting, right? That that's like part of who he is. How many people were there playing along with him? Like, you know, 50 people. That's 
insane. Yeah, isn't that awesome? It <laughs> was like incredible. it was kind of moving. It was a really yeah. cool experience. Yeah, that's a happening wall of ukuleles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, we got David Robinson on drums, who is a former member of the Modern Lovers, who are like just for those that don't know, a highly influential Boston kind of like I'd say power pop rock and roll songwriting band who I personally love, headed up by Jonathan Richman, and then also boasts Jerry Harrison, later of Talking Heads, is one of its members, too. So that's sort of a really interesting stem band for a lot of musical movements. And not to get too ahead of ourselves, but I see, I think the um, common denominator between both of those bands among swapping members is, like, a love for the Velvet Underground. And, like, totally, uh, you know, like, very directly, like, parroting in, a, parroting in a great way, like, the Velvet Underground. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, a lot of the time, Jonathan Richmond's just doing a, you know, a, a Lou Reed impression, which is For great. Sure. <laughs> yeah, a Lou Reed impression by, like, a doofy geek weirdo. Exactly, yeah, totally. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, something about the cars that I think, and you guys, please feel free to agree with me or disagree with me, is I think that they're a band that had a lot of, like, very arty and obtuse influences, but, like, decided decided to work within a pop framework and that's one of the things that makes them so interesting is that yeah like I think Rick Ocasek couldn't help but be a pop songwriter and it's how he felt most comfortable but there's a lot of influences on this album and on other Cars albums that sort of betray that you know that, that they weren't like listening to a lot of pop while they were writing these they were listening to other stuff and Ocasek went on to be a producer and he produced some really like ephemeral stuff. He worked with Suicide, who are like a very harsh like synth rock band uh, from the seventies. He worked. But with I ben think that's another band that like, I mean, much more than the Cars, like wants to be and is really arty and heady. But they can't help themselves and end up writing pop songs as much as they try not to. You know, that's fair. But I would say that Suicide is a less accessible band than the Cars. One hundred percent. I mean, they're they're called Suicide. I don't think yeah. they're like meant to be like on your mom's record shelf. But yes, seriously. And then you know, and he also worked with Bad Brains, which is I think really notable. So because there is a lot of punk influence, I would say in his work. And then, uh, just because uh, we've covered them on this podcast, he he uh, worked with Weezer on their first album, the Blue Album, which definitely has sort of a "we're geeks rocking out" sound to it, which I think is why they chose Okasik to to produce. And then he produced the Green Album for them. And then he produced, and I just I just want to note this: really, one of the only two good later period Weezer albums, uh, yeah. "Everything Will Be All Right in the End," which is they brought real him back which is really good, a really good record, and I like highly recommend. And he produced, in 2004, La Tigra's big pop effort that's called This Island, which sounds a lot like it owes a lot of influence to the cars. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of, I just think that all that part of sort of this musical stew that he's involved in kind of explains where they were coming from at the time when they, when they released this. I think the biggest thing that makes it clear that they weren't listening to pop music is that nothing else in the time the cars started sounds like the cars. Yes. Mm -hmm. like, they're, they're, nothing like on the pop charts in like 1978 sounds quite like, at least nothing really popular sounds yeah. quite like them. Yes. And, and I think that's why they've had a longevity. Although at the time, there are some critics that would disagree with that. Who are like, oh, this is just another new wave band. There's a sloppiness to this. But I mean, it's like, it, this is 1978. So, I mean, this is just like, you know, I don't even know the, the, the term probably was coined like a year, like around this time, That's you correct. know, like, especially in, in America, I feel like, you know, they are the right as this wave is cresting. Yeah, totally. It, they got grouped in with them, but they are not totally of them. So yeah, let's listen to our first song we're going to cover. So this was uh, Gretchen's pick, Bye Bye Love, and is a really good example of sort of that iconic car sound, I would say. So here's a little bit of Bye Bye Love.
that song punches in, I feel like it's a really dynamic start, uh, and then kind of really gets gets into the, to its groove. Gretchen, why do you choose this song? Well, I kind of alluded to you at the beginning, I guess, um, that it, it's really kind of I think the, the song that started me on being a real like conscious, serious Cars fan, and. I think it just has so many elements that work together so well. Like there's that opening that just like announces its presence immediately. It's very catchy. I like how it has like loud and soft moments. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically like the instrumental bits are very like kind of soft. Um, And like when he goes into the verses, um, it's a Ben Orr song, which are are my favorites, the ones that he sings. Sure. Um, Because I mean, Rick Ocasek, like, has said multiple times that, like, if it was a song where he thought, like, the prettiness needed to be played up, <laughs> yes. and have, like, Ben Orr sing it, because Ben Orr is, a, is, like, just technically, like, a smoother singer. Yeah, really um, beautiful vocalist, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which is so funny, because people get confused. People think, like, Rick Ocasek sings everything. Like, they don't they don't realize that it's two different people. Yeah. Um, which is easy to do. I don't think I realized that for a long time. Like, what, definitely not when I was, like, a kid. I probably thought it was, like, all the same person. Mm-hmm. But um, they do have similar voices, but they're they're definitely different, like, if you listen. So I, I love, like, I think Ben is a perfect choice for that song. He, like, kind of gives the tenderness to it. Um, but it's it's just it's just got so much that happens. And I love melancholy songs in general. I love, like, melancholy songs that are very catchy, and that's, like, exactly what that is. So it's just got such a great atmosphere to it. And that's something that I think is very New Wave. Like, New Wave is all about atmosphere and, like, using synth often to convey that atmosphere, I think. Definitely. So... It, it really like it, it's both power pop and new wave to me like it's got the punchy bits that are like power pop um it's got like the guitar bits that are very power pop uh, but then it's got like the i just think of like when he says it's an orangey sky and there's like that like, <laughs> yes. it's very like that's such a moment <laughs> and it's yeah. such a good line too like like an orangey like it just it feels like oh like i kind of know what that means but i also don't literally know like what that means yeah but it has such a, a good feeling and then i will say this song was used really effectively in a movie if people have seen super eight the uh-huh. movie that came out like i feel like it came out like 10 years ago now yeah uh it's like that steven spielberg movie that was stranger things before stranger things totally <laughs> how i feel about it because when i saw that movie I just love the feeling of it so much because if you, for folks listening, if you haven't seen it, it's it's basically like some kids who want to film a movie and they they like happen to see an alien fall from space and like or not fall from space, like being transported, I think, in like a train and it breaks out. It's a whole thing. Anyway, like if you see that movie, uh, it's it's very much like that meeting of like like a twentieth century childhood with like the supernatural. And when I saw it, I was like, I wish this was like a TV show because I would watch it <laughs> and then Stranger <laughs> Things came out. And I was like, oh, this is exactly what I asked for. Um, I'm a huge fan of that show. But it's it, like it was used in that. I remember there's a scene where they're like the, there are two kids who are driving together and they're like, I think they're like teenagers. They're driving and like that song is playing and it's nighttime and it's like, it's just like such a, like that is like how that song feels. It feels like driving at night, like in yes. the dark with like I mean that was like with this girl that this kid liked so like it even has like some of that element of like there's some like romantic conflict sort of like or, or like tension romantic tension I guess is a better word um and that's like in the song lyrics themselves but it's also in like the mood of it well there's, there's so, just a lot going on <laughs> there's, so, there's so much of that that I think is like the aesthetic of this band you know, like, I think there's a reason why they name themselves the Cars, uh, is that there's sort of a, a connotation of everything that Cars, uh, you know, represent within, like, youth culture, which is sort of like power, uh, autonomy, romance, for sure. And definitely, uh, I would say that, like, a lot of this music sounds like it should be listened to at night. And mm. I say that that is, like part of the the synth influence yeah and then and then also too uh, something i've never really thought about about new wave before but is very true is we get to kind of listen in real time while we're listening to these earlier new wave records of musicians figuring out what synthesizers are supposed to be for yes i think they do an awesome job on this whole album and especially this song which is my favorite song on the album uh and uh, but um like almost every song has like a different synth sound 
like or a key, mm -hmm. different keyboard sound. And so like and sometimes you'll get sort of the like like the cheap kind of um, 60s teeny bopper keyboard sound like question mark in the mysterious uh, you know mysterious like it's very like just, staccato like doo -doo yes doo -doo -doo -doo. exactly yeah sometimes you'll get that and then sometimes you hear these like really big synths and sometimes on the same song they'll switch it up where you'll get these synths that sound like van halen like six years later you know i remember reading a quote i can't remember i feel like it was greg hawks i i think it might be elliot easton if it's about guitars but it was talking about how he said, like, we just bought the newest equipment because we just wanted to use it. Yes, and it was like, yeah. it, and it would like become like uh, defunct in like a year. And he said something like, I had so many pedals, like I just like didn't even know what to do with them. <laughs> yeah. and, like, you know, half of them were like passe. And so they, yeah. were so cut they were interested in being cutting edge because like they were genuinely excited about it. Like it wasn't like, they weren't trying to be cutting edge for the sake of, like, sake of selling records or being popular. It was just that they, they thought the technology was cool and they wanted to use it. And, and then another thing, too, I think which that relates to is sort of the creative framework of this band is that Akasic was bringing in the songs, but apparently within the studio and within their sessions together, they were all uh, highly responsible for their own parts. And, and that's also like, I think, really comes through on this entire album is that they were all really artistically invested in the parts that they were playing and they all kind of brought a lot of their individuality as musicians to the songs. This song was previously recorded by one of their earlier bands, uh, Okasik and Orr's earlier band, uh, I believe uh, by Captain Swing was the name of the band. And it's just interesting because the song is a fairly well-written song, but like that band had a different keyboardist and a different guitarist, lead guitarist, and the keyboard parts are kind of all over the place. The Both the keyboard part and the guitar part actually sound, I just need to bring this up just because I think it's it's really funny, sounds specifically like the Nokia ringtone, which is so <laughs> odd. You just, you know, re-listen to it. Uh, and that keyboard part literally ends with it being like, like it's very weird <laughs> so kyle yes? i have a, a, a podcast i want to i want to recommend to you yeah yeah i mean i mean we've both been listening to it we've both been enjoying it so this is mainly for our listeners but there's other podcasts out there that are about music and some of them are pretty awesome and some of them are hosted by comedians like us Unbelievable. We've got our whole little scene. We got a whole little scene going. We didn't even realize. Yeah, totally. And we started it. We started this scene. <laughs> oh, 100%. But, but this is a newer podcast uh, than ours. It's really cool. It's called The Lyric Boys. It's hosted by two comedians, uh, Lucian Flores and Andrew Stieglitz. Uh, and it's a really, really cool podcast. Uh, mainly what they do is they'll focus on a band of the week. And then they'll take 10 of their wildest and weirdest lyrics from that band and then use those lyrics as a jumping off point to discuss the history of the band and then also share stories and joke around and riff. And they're honestly really, really fun, really, really, really knowledgeable. Yes. And uh, it's really cool because I think a lot of times on our podcast and I know when I listen to music, I'm always I'm not so much a lyrics first guy. I'm more like listening for the music. So, yeah, anyone who can talk about lyrics in a fun and interesting way, um, you know, I'll give them a big old kiss, kiss on the cheek. Yeah, that's right. You just you have a great appreciation for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have uh, really enjoyed some of their episodes and I think that our listeners will, too because they cover some of the same bands that we do or bands that are like really complementary to some of the stuff that we do with our focus on 20th century music. Right. Like their first episode was about the Beach Boys and was super fun. Uh, and uh, they have an upcoming episode that's going to be about Weezer, who we're revisiting in this episode, which is really exactly. cool. Yep. Uh, and then their latest episode was about the Doors, who are like so integral to the story of the band Love, who we covered a few weeks ago. Right, right, right. So if you want to hear more about the Doors and about some of 
Jim Morrison's lyric writing capabilities, <laughs> then the best thing to do is to listen to the Lyric Boys and then listen to our love podcast. And you can do that back to back. And that's super fun. That sounds like a beautiful Sunday evening. Yeah, seriously. How or contemplative. How beautiful. Yeah, or a beautiful commute if you still commute. And if you do, wear a mask. <laughs> great, great segue to a good PSA. Yeah, seriously. So you can follow the Lyric Boys uh, at the Lyric Boys on all social media. You can subscribe to their podcast anywhere where you listen. And uh, we hope you enjoy it. Indeed. Jason, here's like a question for you. Yes. So you know so much about this timeline here. Mm -hmm. So can you like set up for us now that we're going to talk mainly about Pinkerton? Totally. Sort of just like the story of Weezer up to Rivers Cuomo going off to Harvard. The Blue Album is thought of now as like an all-time great. I think it's it's in Rolling Stone's 500 greatest albums of all time. Yeah. I don't think that would be... Con- it would, like, if someone put them... If someone put it in their top five, top ten, like, yeah. that would not be controversial. And I adore it. It's an yeah. absolutely incredible record. It didn't come out of the gate that successful. It was kind of slow burn success. Is that true? Yeah. Um, because they didn't have a major following before they were signed. Right. They were kind of like big in the L.A. Sunset Strip scene, mm-hmm. and they were like pulled out of nowhere by some A and R guy from Geffen Records. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, but uh, all of that changes because of the the amazing Spike Jones. Yeah, because of his video for right. Buddy Holly. Yeah, which everyone's seen mm-hmm. because it was at one point bundled with Windows computers. Yes, so yeah. like that's really ubiquitous, and that's yeah. a huge amount of exposure for a band like that at the time. Mm-hmm. That you could just watch this Weezer video, and it was the Weezer cast or the Weezer cast. Yeah. It feels the like cast they were of cast. Weezer. Yeah, <laughs> tonight the original cast of Weezer. Tonight, Patrick Wilson will be played by Patrick, Patrick Dempsey. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, no, but it was it was the band members. And Rivers Cuomo will be played by Toby Maguire. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great like made for TV River or like yeah. uh, Weezer movie. Yeah. But it was all of the guys from Weezer um, put into. Uh, through blue screen, right? Through blue screen put mm-hmm. into a Happy Days episode. Yeah. And it really at the time was revolutionary. Nobody had seen anything like it before. And it's still really such a such a fun funny video. Yeah. Um it's, it's amazing. It's classic. Yeah. yeah. I think it's probably of some of the greatest music videos. It's it's one of the best. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Certainly. I used to teach a music videos uh, unit for a class I used to do for kids, and I would always show it. Wow. And kids yeah. loved it, even though they didn't know what Happy Days was. Yeah, yeah. They just could see how funny it was. They loved watching the Fonz dance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like it's, yeah, no, it's, it's I great. I love watching Ron Howard get mad. Yeah, Ron <laughs> Howard gets mad. <laughs> and what, what it was is they sifted through hours and hours and hours of episodes. I think mm-hmm. it was like a super laborious process mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, but yes they go from like you know a sort of moderate alternative rock band to like a gigantic sensation yeah. because of this video and, and also just for listeners that don't know them as well as mm-hmm. the three of us do just when you say the blue album oh yeah that's their debut mm-hmm. and it was self-titled and at the time was just a blue background but then they decided to follow that motif and they also have a green album a red album uh, a and a white album, right? Mm-hmm. That's and they're, it. They're threatening a black album as well. That's right. Mm-hmm. They're threatening a black album. Yes. <laughs> the uh, little new Weezer releases are threats. Is that going to be like a metal album? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it is, they are threats. They're like, oh no, really? You're doing this again? Okay. Why is it going to be a metal album? Uh, I don't know. Because it have to be. If you're going to do, you got to do Metallica. You do yeah. yeah. If it's a black album, and like. You know, to quote... Or, or a Jay-Z, Jay-Z a rap album. That, yeah, which he's been saying he wants to do, and he's done some of Rivers. Yeah, he, he's he done some, a little some on this. Yeah. Like, he does, like, kind of Beck style. Yeah, Beck yeah. style, yeah. Yeah, yeah but also, yeah, like, yeah, Weezer albums, you're always asking yourself, I need to make this joke for Weezer Geeks, you're always asking yourself when they're released, maybe you will break my heart next summer, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? like. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, oh boy. we'll talk about it. But yeah. Uh, but also important to mention about Blue Album that, like, stylistically, it was sort of definitive for '90s pop rock in mm-hmm. that it was very sincere, very honest. A lot of like one, four, five chord progressions, 
just like cheery major key mm-hmm. really amazing pop music filtered through the edgy punkiness of rock and roll right um but it doesn't get too emotionally deep or complicated mm-hmm. uh so the combination of that the album being of that nature and then them becoming this blow up success because of buddy holly left the band in this position where i think it was like sort of they were getting a critical response once the video happened that they were superficial, they weren't artists, they were only big because they had a really cheeky video. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ever-anxious, perennially self-deprecating <laughs> Cuomo took that to heart extremely. Um, I actually didn't know this until recently. Um, I came across this quote online that I, I haven't been able to find since I came across it originally, but it's in the Pinkerton Diaries, which he released alongside his third solo album which is like a compilation of demos yes yeah which i've heard which are all really fun yeah yeah yeah. um and the diaries is this he just literally published his diaries from the era when he was writing this record which is crazy um but there's this amazing segment in it where he's after pinkerton has been released and not succeeded very well he writes in it i am a bad songwriter it was all because of the buddy holly music video so he, this was wow. very heavily on his mind that he wanted to prove to the entire world when he wrote this record, I am an artist, I'm going to write the most convincing, sophisticated piece of music ever. That so. makes a lot of sense. Because mm-hmm. uh, I just sort of saw it as, I mean, it, it's true, but like I saw it as like, I'm a huge rock star, so I'm going to... It makes more sense that there was some. It's it was more calculated than that. Mm-hmm. Um, that there it was like he had something to prove to other people rather than I'm so big. I know I'm so big. I can do something big, and I'm just going to turn inward for its own sake. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, it was probably a little bit of both. Yeah, that, but he was really torn up about it. Right, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And it's actually interesting you're talking about him being so big because the impetus for the project was related to that the first version of Pinkerton was Songs from the Black Hole. Right. Which was this completely harebrained, melodramatic... I was about to say, like... Like, the sound of it is like my nightmare. (laughs) I hate (laughs) the idea of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If I hear space opera and you're talking about an an album, I'm like, get it the fuck. Away That's from me. so funny. Get it away from me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you like theatrics, you know. I like theatrics. I like. I like. Um, like I like emotional expression, but I like pop songs, and I like. I, I like. You can have a. Th- I like themes. Yeah, and I like you know either musical or lyrical themes, but like. As soon as you tell me like this is a fucking opera with like three suites, like. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not interested. Not interested. <laughs> well, I'm a dork for it, but I think it's because I love Weezer so much and because it was this, like, aborted project yes, that never existed. Yes. I think, objectively, it's actually pretty mediocre. But he's... So he's at... Uh, he he's had, has enrolled in Harvard at this point um, as part of this ongoing effort to professionalize himself as an artist, uh, studying Italian opera. He's joined the choir. He Although he... He auditioned for a variety of choirs and had the big beard that he was that he had when he was writing the record and was sort of unrecognizable. And he wanted his just talent as a singer to get him into the highest level of choir, and he didn't get in. <laughs> <laughs> so he was singing in some like intermediate level choir. Oh, that's great. But yeah, at any rate, totally expanding his knowledge of song, uh, music theory and really getting obsessed with Italian opera, particularly Madama Butterfly, which I guess is sort of the most famous of Italian operas. Mm-hmm. And um, we saw it recently. We, we did, went on a met. friend date and we were like, let's see Madama Butterfly and then talk about Weezer. It was so fun. Oh gosh, the uh, show is just gut-wrenching. It's, yeah. Amazing. It's pretty interesting because it's super anti-imperialist. Mm-hmm. It's about a general who's stationed in Japan who marries a uh, 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 Japanese woman and like professes his love for her, fathers her, her child, and then leaves and says, I'm coming back, when he has no intention of coming back, and then 
this drives her to despair, mm-hmm. and she commits seppuku yep. at the end of the show. Oh gosh! So it's it's pretty. Um, I'd say it's pretty anti-male, mm-hmm. all things considered. So it's interesting that this was such an uh, inspiration for Rivers because Pinkerton is fairly self-deprecating as well. Oh yeah, but still not in a way that's like. I don't know. Do you think he expresses growth in Pinkerton or change? I mean, it's so weird with kind of what happened with him, you know? Yeah, I don't have a clear answer to that. Cause, yeah. And I, that's part of, in a way, the appeal of the record is that it's so messy and complicated and all that stuff. It makes it problematic. It makes it scary. Uh, but, yeah, the 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 main character that of that opera that Louis is describing, his name is Pinkerton. So the whole album shifted once he got this letter from an Asian woman and cast himself in this role. Hmm. The synths kind of disappeared, the distortion got turned way up, um, and the song craft just, like, in, like it increased by, you know, uh, orders of magnitude. He just really leaned into this being an incredible piece of composition. Yeah, and it is a beautiful album, Mm -hmm. and on multiple listens, it always reveals something new. I found that too, yeah. Yeah, and it is somewhat intricate and also like more melodic the more you listen to it. Really more interest very interestingly melodic. Mm-hmm. Like his vocal lines are very particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've also found a sort of unsung part of the record is the rhythm section. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And I was really pleased that um in the when it got reissued, I think in two thousand ten uh, the Pitchfork review kind of sung the praises of Pat Wilson and Matt Sharp, who the drummer and the bassist. The drumming in particular is, I think, some of the best percussion in any modern rock record. It's so musical. It's it like he could be playing it on the piano. It's just it's so in step with everything else that's going on in the song. He there's like few instances of polyrhythm where he's playing separate rhythm from the rest of the song. It's just tremendous. Yeah, it's very innovative. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it's it spawned an entire genre of music, and it makes sense, because everything... I'd say all the parts of the album, uh, the it's really the band functioning as individuals in support of this whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a way that I think is really stellar. And it's a shame that... Why, why, do you know sort of the reasons why Matt Sharp left after Pinkerton? Because he was their original bassist. I think he had so much to do with those first two records and why they're so good. Yeah. I, it's clouded in mystery. There's, mm-hmm. I think there was like an NDA signed and stuff. Really? Yeah. Which is, you know, a whole chapter. Well, there's been suits, right? Yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole aspect to Rivers as the songwriter of the band as this like, uh, di- um, dictator of the band too mm-hmm. where he's like very intense about the business of how they operate and uh as as far as i know the sort of like uh like approved for the public version is that he wanted to invest in his side project band the rentals yeah yeah um which he then which went is off which, and wrote. which i love i yeah, love yeah. the rentals yeah he wrote seven more minutes after mm-hmm. pinkerton and was gone i think by the time it was done yeah, he was off with the rentals. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen wondered... the rentals live. Me too. Yeah, yeah. they're great. He's yeah. a very good bassist. Like, yeah. he's a great live bassist. I think they really lost something in him, which, I think like, most Weezer fans don't disagree with, you mm-hmm. know, like, yeah. I think mostly what you lost, what we lost when we lost him was, like, a sort of intangible character that he, like, added a, a like, a punky, more subversive nature to the band he was he, the Keith Richards of like that, and he also had, like, he had he was the other one who had a strong personality, mm-hmm. yeah, and sort of the antithesis of River, Rivers, yeah. from what I understand, is that he's like 
a fun, outgoing, kind of quirky guy. Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He did big poses on stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. He would actually try to, like, I think there was a lot of infighting in the band because he wanted to, like, introduce songs in concerts. He wanted to have, like, oh. the front man persona, even though he really wasn't. Right. Like, everything he played, Rivers wrote, note for note. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Although... Is that true? Like, like there's okay. no... Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't contribute to the way the bass lines fit within the songs, or now that you ask me that, I, I think for the bass lines, absolutely not. But I imagine his backup vocals because they were so like characteristic. You know, I, uh-huh. I think he had a share in yeah. composing some of those melodies. So would Rivers? This is a question that I honestly don't know the answer to. Would he bring in full arrangements? Like he wouldn't bring in like like so like Pat Wilson was never like the drums sound like this, mm-hmm. or like Brian Bell, like the other guitar part. This is this is how I hear it sounding like they they're not really the contributors. Rivers is the driving force in terms of the way that band sounds and continues to sound. It's interesting you ask that because Pinkerton is the record where he did the the least amount of that. Where Rivers did the least dictating, actually, yeah, of musical playing mm-hmm. because while he was at Harvard, he had a reconstructive surgery on his leg. Yes. He was born with one leg shorter than the other. Oh, my God. So the procedure was the bones in his leg getting broken in an extremely painful sort of ongoing process. And then they just had to grow back together in a longer way. Uh, But that meant he was really immobile and wrote a lot of the music sitting in a chair in a, like, sort of position where he couldn't move (laughs) and didn't bring large drum tracks to their recording sessions. Uh... I do think the case is still that a lot of Matt Sharp and Brian Bell's playing on that record was written by Rivers. But I don't know specifically. We're speaking about the drumming before. I think it's a testament to the fact that that's the most interesting record as far as their percussion goes Mm. because Pat Wilson just got to actually compose. And he's a pretty incredible musician. Yeah. After Pinkerton, their whole career, he's doing nothing. He's just sitting back. And Mm -hmm. I think it's because Rivers has kind of kept him locked up in that way. Uh, Eli. Yes, Louis. I know this is one of your faves. You you introduced me to this, you know, many a year ago. Yeah, I mean, this definitely was something that I had knowledge of, but it wasn't anything that I... Um, was listening to regularly, and I hear I hear so much of your songwriting in this record. Always when I listen to he, it, he is a massive influence on me. Yeah, so much so that you named one of your children after him. Well, correct. I don't, I don't know if that's entirely true, but it's, <laughs> it, was, it was influential on the selection. Yeah, definitely. So, um, share with me uh, why is this one so important to you? Why is this record so important to you? It's it's was my it's my initial exposure to Harry Nielsen. Yeah, sort of twinned, I guess, with the point. Sure, which, which is for those of you that don't know, Harry Nielsen's like children's fable, yeah, uh, animated series or animated special animated, slash record, animated special movie. It was like a TV movie, yeah, TV movie, which he made right before this. Yes, because um, this record is from seventy. 71 and the point also came out in 71. Yeah. But this is a massively transitional record for him which we can get into. Yeah, let's listen to some of the uh album opener which is the classic Got to Get Up. Uh Made and the we'll- famous recently in in Russian Doll. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting, which they Very could interesting. they could uh, I just read they could only use it sparingly because the rights were so expensive that Yeah, they had to be selective they, about when they could and couldn't use it. Yeah, be selective about when they couldn't couldn't use it. So let's listen to some of Gotta Get Up. Uh, and then we're going to talk about like why this feels so transitional for him and who he was before this and who he sort of became after this record. Here we go. Here's Gotta Get Up by Harry Nielsen from Nielsen Schmielsen. Kick the jukebox on KPIS.FM, the golden stream. Okay, so that's Gotta Get Up. Oh, it's such a good track. What a killer album opener, too. Yeah, it's just it's just really, really, really good. So, uh, 
let's talk about this. So so let's talk about uh, Nielsen sort of overall. He was primarily earlier on in his career was known as a songwriter. Uh, he wrote some hits for the monkeys. He wrote, he wrote hits for the monkeys. He wrote uh, uh, one, which is a hit for Three Dog Night. Yep, one for three, for three Dog Night. Yeah, which is a really good song. Great song. One is the loneliest number that you one ever is knew. The loneliest number. Yeah, I think that was probably his biggest hit, actually. Yeah. And then like there was Cuddly Toy for the Monkeys. Yeah, which and, was big for and him. And Daddy's Song for the Monkeys, which was less not really a hit. But. Yeah, not really a hit, but a really good song. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think one was probably his biggest hit. Yeah, and. And he was also recording. He lived in Los Angeles, originally from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. He moved out to Los Angeles. Something that runs through a lot of his songwriting is um, he, his father walked out on his family when he was like four years old. Yeah. Right? Was that, is yeah. that right? Four? Was I, he I don't four? remember if it was four or not. I don't remember what age. But yeah, yeah he was like, walked out. he was very young. And yeah. Then, and then and then he wrote that song about it in 1941. Yeah, 1941. And then, Daddy's song is also about his yeah. relationship with his father. And I would also say that like a general distrust of like male uh, authority figures kind of runs through the current right. of his writing. You but know? then he also did this. He, then he walked out on his first wife and kid. Yeah, because, you know, the father becomes the son the and the son becomes, becomes the father. The son and so on. Yes, to quote um, the Superman movie, which you've never seen. Right. Well, you know, there's a lot of a lot of those movies I haven't seen. I know. I'll get around to it when my kids are in college. Or when they're old enough to watch them and I can bring them over. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Uncle Louie's here, kids. Yeah, time to watch Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. Anyway. <laughs> I'll join in on that. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, but yeah, so like his, his first albums, once he finally... You know, like his well, first, you know, his first albums were, um, which are great albums, are v- compared to this, yeah, are very like fussy in terms of like their like uh, orchestral arrangements, yeah, like it stacks and stacks of like elaborate vocal harmonies. He worked with this arranger named George Tipton, who yep. like did these like very it's like chamber pop yeah chamber pop or almost like music hall music hall yeah yeah like uh, which was like a somewhat uh successful subgenre of like the late 60s mm-hmm. but definitely occupied like a bit of a different space than like the larger world of like 60s pop music yeah uh and then he he was sort of rocketed to fame mainly because in a famous press conference oh yeah you know it was with the beatles the press conference with the beatles they said who's your favorite american group right now someone asked them and like who was it only two of them or were all of them like nielsen it's oh, nielsen yeah. i think it was like it was either john or paul they said like who's your favorite group yeah american group and they said one of them said nielsen yeah nielsen and they said who's your favorite american solo artist and they said nielsen, nielsen yeah and that was kind of it. And then he struck up this friendship with them. Yeah. And I think their press officer, Derek Taylor, bought like a crate of his first album. Yeah. And, was, like, and like gave them away as like Christmas gifts or something like that. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Because they just loved They, they just loved him. And they, they like just called loved him. him. John and Paul like called him up and yeah. said like how much they liked the album. Yeah. They were fans. You know, and that was that was you know, it's it's very an int- helpful. Yeah, well, yeah, as it would be for anybody, you sure. know, to get that Beatles stamp of approval. But it, it's interesting because his songwriting sort of zigs where like Lennon McCartney's songwriting zags. You know, like I feel like he does a lot of stuff that they would never think to do, and I think it's one of the reasons why they liked him so much. You know, wasn't there uh, a period where they were thinking of having him join? The Beatles. I, I don't think that was a real thing. Ugh. I think I think there's like a. a I, w- I wish that was a real a, thing. Uh, an apocryphal story about uh, that. Yeah, I think that would be. Yeah, I don't think there was the best. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So now and then this song is sort of a bold statement in itself, uh, because it certainly feels like a Nielsen song, for sure. However, it definitely sort of has this boldness of like intent and production that I don't feel is existent on the earlier Nielsen records. Yeah, well he broke he broke ties with his whole production and arranging team and was like I, I want to make a hit pop record. Yeah. Like a rock and roll record, which he never had done before. Yeah. And there's actually a demo of Gotta Get Up made with his old production team. Yeah, and it's much more like kind of light and flowery compared to Much more flowery, yeah. does not have that driving rhythm. Yeah. And I, I want to say on most of his old records, like 
he didn't he wrote the songs but he didn't play on them yeah uh he rarely played on them and on this album he he does because he's like a very uh dear to my heart uh like primitive musician yeah and he, like on gotta get up he's is one of the f- like three or so tracks where he plays piano and he just bangs. Uh, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Yes, absolutely. He bangs the shit out of that piano. Yeah. He's like, womp 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 womp. And like, I just love that. And that's when I like. I'm, I'm a self-taught musician. Yes. So like, especially in like when I was like learning how to play the instrument, and I still love to do this. It's still definitely part of my style. Just like bang on that piano. Yeah. Because he doesn't know how to do anything more complicated than that. I would say definitely as a pianist, you aren't afraid to use the piano as a percussive instrument. Yes. And it def- that's what he's doing. Yeah. And it definitely runs through what you do very much so. And I definitely think it, it, it translates to to this song as well. Um, you know, and, and we should note just just because we haven't talked about him yet, one of the main reasons why this whole album sounds the way it does is the work of Richard Perry, his yes, producer yeah, he paired next, with. Yeah. yeah, that's the next thing to talk about, right? So Richard Perry was a big, big pop, uh, big pop um, producer who worked with Ringo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I think he worked with George Harrison as well, right? In the seventies, am I wrong about that? I'm not 100 percent sure he, he i know for sure he had hits with the pointer sisters yes he did he released in the 80s in yeah, the, he produced all those hits yeah all those songs um he worked with streisand he worked with donna summer he like worked with like big uh sort of like uh, you know these like 70s singer songwriter or you know like not sometimes not songwriters but these big like 70s vocal personalities mm-hmm. and that's sort of the way that he build Nielsen when he worked with him yeah. and that was a change for Nielsen yeah. And, yeah. If, and if you there's a documentary that I feel like everybody should watch yeah it's so, really have good you seen it yeah it's everybody's like, talking Nielsen, Nielsen and why is everybody talking, talking about him, him? yeah it's, it's, it's just it's a really good music documentary it's really entertaining and the section on this album is fascinating yeah because basically like Richard Perry had to like drag this album out of him yeah like it was a very difficult process because yeah like he would show up at the studio and like not have any lyrics for the songs yeah and like he would he would like write them at the last second right before singing them he was sort of weirdly self-destructive you know oh absolutely he was yeah it's like it's like when you hear like how this album was made it's like amazing that it's as good as it is yeah because it was it was i think it was like not a an easy easy i think it was like drove richard perry crazy yeah but in the end it was like he was like so proud of they were both you know richard perry's like i looks like one of the best things i've ever made yeah, and it is one of the best things he it ever is. made. It's just like such a complete piece of work, you know. And, and that's something about Kick the Jukebox is we only like scratch the surface. You know, we talk about three songs from the album. We try to do things that are uh, representative of the album and sort of give you a flavor. But there's so many different types of songs on this record. It's just worth noting. Like yeah. this is the record that Harry Nilsson wrote "Lime and the Coconut" for, this, which this is, is amazing. Such a fa- now famous, uh, well-known, uh, no, you know, novelty song. Uh, but it is so entertaining and also like, you know, it's him dipping his toes into you know calypso rhythms and, and, and it idioms. Only has one chord that song. Which yeah, is, which was I think the intent was he wanted to write a song with one chord. Yeah, and succeeded. Yeah, it's and it's a gorgeous song. Like it's really really fun. Um, mm-hmm. some other like really good tracks from this. I'm just gonna like look at the sleeve here just to like sort of talk about some of the ones, like released as um. B side for "Gotta Get Up" was the Moonbeam song. That song is beautiful. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, um, like his sense of humor is like it's a beautiful song about a moonbeam, mm-hmm. and then in the middle of it, he sings like on a fence with bits of crap around the bottom, mm-hmm. and just like makes it so like it can't be like uh, he won't let anything be like too pretty. Yeah, yeah, or or like driving along as well, which is the second song yeah. on the album. That that one feels actually almost like a like. Uh, lost track from um from the point there's something about that that i feel Uh has a real tied in idiom you know that's sort of it's sort of this like it's this like nice um meditative song about like sort of the lives of people Mm -hmm. you know which he was good at i think he was really insightful when it came to the human condition 
and then, you know, let's talk about another song we're going to play and listen to, Jump Into the Fire, where he, I think it was a statement on his part that he could rock. Yeah. And that's something that we hadn't really heard from him before this track. Uh, and then it just sort of, like, this song sort of is like an explosion on the album. Uh, so let's listen to a little bit of it. This is uh, <laughs> Jump Into the Fire by Harry Nielsen from his release, Nielsen Schmielsen, one of the best albums of all time, hmm. here on Kick the Jukebox, kpiss.fm. Yeah, well, at the at the end of it, at the very end of it, he uh, the bass player uh, during like the big big breakdown, he tunes the bass down while he's playing it. Oh, that's oh, that's later. That's yeah, it's a little it's a little later on. His name's uh, Herbie Flowers was the bassist. Uh, and he thought that the the song was going to fade out before that, and they used it. And and oh, to much right. effect, you know, that's the thing is that there's actually a lot of like wild experimentation going on on this record. Mm. That's something we didn't talk about with "Gotta Get Up," but it's worth mentioning is that all those like strange, there's a lot of strange piano crescendos at the end of that song. Oh yeah, and those weren't originally in the song. Those resulted in the fact that they recorded that song sort of an obsessive amount of times. Mm-hmm. And they were going kind of bananas, and they decided to use that energy in the song. And then uh, Nielsen got really um, improvisational with his um, with his piano playing at the you know That's during awesome. later uh, yeah during later takes. So this one is like definitely one of his hardest rocking tracks for sure. And it uh, it feels like a I feel like it feels like an era appropriate or maybe like slightly earlier like Rolling Stones track. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, what it's it sounds like it was built. I mean, and feel like maybe it was, and I'm remembering this. Like it sounds like it was built out of a jam almost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it feels like pretty improvisational. I don't know if it was built out of a jam or not. Uh, also, it has on it. Overdubbed later, this is just kind of fun for music geeks like us. You know, Klaus Vormann did a rhythm guitar overdub on this. Yeah, which he is known mostly as, as a bass player. That's correct. Like he plays at the bass on Gotta Get Up. That's correct. He does. Yeah, and he, for our listeners that don't know who he is, is a musician who did a lot of work with Beatles solo projects. They used him a lot. He's a session musician. And he was a friend of theirs in Hamburg when they were just starting out. That's right. He drew the cover for Revolver. That's correct. Yeah. So he has an interesting tie-in with sort of the visual visual music history and yeah. like audio music history. And he had... A hit later on, right? He had not on his own. Not on his own. He he played famously played the bass on "You're So Vain" by Carly. That's correct. He does that really cool thing at the beginning where it goes like, and she goes like, she she I forget what she says, but she's like, oh my god. Yeah. You hear like whisper something at the beginning. Yeah. She can't believe the cool thing he just did. Yeah. And And then she kept it, and then she kicks into the song. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So this one. Uh, is definitely a bit of an outlier in in Nielsen's catalog. Yeah, I think it's also one chord. Is it? Yeah. It just does that the whole time. That is. That's really. That's interesting. I'd like to look in. I feel like it's two chords. Because it has that portion to it, right? That's oh, and then the bass line is what shapes it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, chord baby. Well, you would know, baby. <laughs> so yeah, this one I want to talk about because it's an outlier, uh, and also this ended up charting for them as well. This was the second single from the album, and it definitely established him as like a you know a rock. A viable rock personality. Yeah. Um, in the Atlantic, uh, James Parker, the the music critic, called it um, "livid dragon bones funk." Wow. Okay. <laughs> Which I just feel is worth mentioning, and it, it is, and it 
does have like kind of a funk feel to it, but very sparse and pared down, right? Yeah. You know, like it's like the least elaborate funk, but it almost like predates kind of that like sparse new wave funk that I like so much from like, I would say, you know, like the B-52s or like the no wave movement, Mm -hmm. Bush Tetris, Mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. I feel like there's definitely you can draw a line between that song and uh, uh, those, you know, the songs I just mentioned. Um, in its like kind of intensity and in its simplicity and and in its also in its danceability too. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely very danceable. Yeah, which is cool. Yeah, and it, the band just like sits in that groove, so it's it that you really just get to like focus on the vocal, and he's just like he's all over the place. The mad. vocal, he's descending into like lustful madness. And on that note of lustful madness, that's it for another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I hope you enjoyed this best of episode. I want to thank our special guests, Gretchen Unico, Jason Boxer, and Eli Bolin. Uh, You want to hit that subscribe button on our podcast if you enjoyed what you heard, because we'll be back in two weeks with our season premiere of a whole season that is going to be about the history of disco music. It is going to be awesome. We'll be back in two weeks with that. In the meantime, you can follow us on all social media, listen to some uh, back episodes, and we will see you around like a record. Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah!